Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Morning. Do <laughs> you like how awake 9 a.m. is? It's good. It's good. <clears throat> well, you've seen uh, there's a book on your seat. Um, and I want, if you look at the back of the bulletin, you can see that we've also given you homework for this series. Uh, reading each week. I expect you all to read and be prepared for the quiz um, every Sunday. I want to I remind you that this book is not the Bible. So when we are walking through this series, we will be working with Scripture, and the book acts as a supplement. And I want to be so clear about that. At Hope Chapel, we're convinced that the congregation gathers together and hears the Word of God preached. So the book is helpful. We want you to read it. We think that it helps point to scriptural truths, but it is not itself the Bible. Everyone clear on that? Okay. I want to give you a little insight into what preaching is, whether you're doing it from the pulpit or at home or at the dinner table or at work. When you are preaching, you are not writing mail. You are delivering mail. Preaching is you pointing to what the Word of God says. You're not making a message up. You're not creating new content. You are pointing to what the Bible tells us about God and his plan for humankind. We are convinced that the most important thing we can do as believers to learn about God is to read God's word. And we also think that the word of God does something to you. I think as we study the word of God, as we study the Bible, one of the mistakes that we can make is to slowly believe that we can become masters of the word. But that's not how it works. Instead, the word masters us. It teaches us, it forms us. Look at what the author of the book of Hebrews says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We believe that the word of God is powerful and does something to you when you read it. We are convinced of that. Now when we preach, we are pointing to the word of God and we do it really in two different ways. The main way that the word of God is preached here at Hope Chapel and at faithful churches in general is what we call expositional preaching. It's where we look at a passage in the Bible or a book in the Bible and we go through it verse by verse or precept by precept or chapter by chapter. How many of you have been with us for our study on the book of Acts? Great. That was expositional preaching. It's working through a book sequentially. It's meeting the scripture on its own terms. It's beginning with the word of God and then talking about what it says. That should be the regular repeated diet of the church. That's the way we should normally have the word of God heard and preached. There is another way to preach. And again, it's still about the word of God, but that is what we call topical sermons, where we take a doctrine or a piece of theology or a theological concept, and we begin there. Now, let me give you an example. I have a friend who recently moved to Adelaide. Anybody ever heard of Adelaide? A few of you, it's in Australia. And I was convinced that when he moved there, I was going to go on Wikipedia, and I was going to read more about his city than he ever had, and then I was going to call him and just give him facts about the city he moved to. And I was weirdly excited about this, this exercise. So I call my friend Luke, he's moved to Adelaide, and I begin to say, hey, Adelaide is the fourth most populous city in Australia. 
And he's like, okay. And I was like, also, Adelaide has uh, one out of every ten persons is, is born in the UK. And he's like, okay, that's great. And I just kept on listing facts. It was a weird conversation. And he's like, right, Andrew, I'm glad you know all these facts about Adelaide, but you've never been here. And I was like, right, but I know all these facts. I know the city. And he's like, no, 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 you've never actually, hold on. There we go. That was weird. He says, you've never actually been to the city of Adelaide. I was like, okay, okay. So listen, one way to know a city is to go to that city, to walk down the streets, to meet the neighbors, to go in all the shops, to personally experience the city on its own terms. Another way to learn about the city is to go onto like Google Maps and get this bird's eye view and see how the residential and commercial is divided up, see how often there are one-way streets, how many cul-de-sacs there are. It's a top-down view of the city. In both cases, you are still learning about that city. But in one case, you've been there. So the point I'm trying to make is this. When we do topical sermons, when we discuss a theological concept, we are still going to be examining Scripture. You have this book, and it's great and it's helpful, but we're still going to be looking at the Word of God. Instead of walking through it sequentially, we're going to think about a concept and look at where it's displayed in various places in Scripture. And the concept we've chosen is the gospel. What is the gospel? I've offered a number of diagnostic questions in your, in, your, uh, in your notes that you can review and think through, and I'll let you think through those on your own. Um, but the goal of this series is when we're done, we know the gospel better. How many of you have gotten an eye examination in the last year? Oh, wow, a lot of you, good. How many of you have glasses or contact lenses? Great. I didn't have glasses until I was like 20, 21, something like that, shortly before I got married. And everyone knows you go into whatever the eye doctor is, optometrist, ophthalmologist, no one knows which one it is, but, but uh, you go into one of those, and they do that thing where they use these, like, machines with lenses, right, and they're like, is this better or worse, you know what I'm talking about, they're like, three or four, three or four, and you're like, ah, oh, four, like, okay, five or four, five or four, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know, right, <clears throat> it's very stressful, and, and by the end of a few minutes, you now have the correct set of lenses, and you're looking at these words at the end of the room, and you can read them perfectly, and they're super clear, and then I remember the doctor saying, okay, you want to see what your vision actually is like? And I was like, sure. And he pulls the thing away, and it's just blurry at the end of the room. I could not believe how poorly I could read those words without the lenses. So here's what I want. I want us to, at the end of the series, look back at the concept of the gospel and how well we understood it and see a sharpening of focus. I want to raise our gospel IQ. If there is anything... Anything that we should understand well, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a huge, like a, a vast depth of riches in the scripture about a wide array of different subjects. But the central, most important thing is the gospel. And it's important for at least two reasons. One is, it is our hope. Whatever hope you have, it should be in the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ for a reason. It's the center of our belief. It is the thing that has marked Christians out as distinct for all Christian history. We must know it. The other reason is our mission as believers, as the church, is to tell people about this good news. It's to tell people about this good news. We see this at the end of Matthew as Jesus ascends. 
he says to his disciples and those gathered, Jesus came, to, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Later in Acts, we get another picture of this. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we have walked through the book of Acts, we've seen on a repeated basis, they explain what it is they've been called to do. About halfway through the book of Acts, Peter's now with Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and he's telling him what Jesus commanded. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We see this this message repeated over and over and over again, and we have to be aware of what the truth of the gospel is to convey it well. Years ago, when I first got married, I was um, in need of work, and we had a school here at the time, Hope Academy, and there was a class that they needed someone to teach, and they said, hey, Andrew, could you teach British literature? And I should have said, no. But I said, yep, I can do that. So I said yes, and I signed the papers, and I went home, and I immediately began to find out what British literature was. And if you had kids in that class, I'm sorry, this is also a confession. <laughs> and I was, I was like studying, I was reading about it, I was going on Spark Notes, and I was just like, I gotta just stay one session ahead of these students. Just one session. There was this one student who was particularly smart and kind of had me figured out. So the whole time I'm trying to like evade him. <clears throat> I, I didn't know what British literature was or much about it. So it was very hard to convey that truth. Now compare that now. I teach a Viola and I teach New Testament classes. And I spent years studying the New Testament at, at like a very high level, formally educated. And uh, when I go to those classes, I am far more informed about what it is that I want to pass on. But occasionally I get asked questions. And I'm in the same spot. And I'm like, oh, uh, let me go home and research that, and I will find the answer for you. Whether you are new to the message of the gospel or whether you have been around it for a long time, I think as believers it is our duty and really our joy to return to the message over and over and over again, to sharpen our focus, to reflect on what it is that God has achieved so that when we go out, we can convey it clearly and convincingly and compellingly. So that's what we're doing for six weeks. We are talking about the message of the gospel. I think there's four audiences of people here today. The first are believers. You know what the gospel is. You have responded to it in repentance and faith, and it is your greatest joy and your greatest hope. For you, this is just meant to strengthen you, to continue to clarify categories, and to compel you to go out and tell people about the good news that you hold dear. There's There's a second group. And I think this is the only group that if you're a member of it, you might not know. It's like an attender. You come here on a regular basis. You hear people talk about Jesus. You hear us sing songs about Jesus. You would count yourself among the number of believers. But you haven't repented and turned to Jesus in faith. You actually don't understand the gospel. It's unclear to you. Here's what I want you to ask as we walk through this series. Ask this question, have I responded in repentance and faith? Do I understand the good news? I want this group to be introspective. The third group are visitors. 
Maybe you've been dragged here by somebody or you told somebody you'd come and you showed up and it's a little bit uncomfortable for you. And maybe you vaguely know about Christianity, but mo for the most part, your experience of Christians is a little bit maybe at work or whatever. And then the way that preachers and Christians are depicted in television and in movies. If that's you, I want you to hear what it is that we actually believe. I am always surprised when I talk to people who aren't Christians at how little they understand about the Christian message. The vast majority of people who aren't Christians don't know what Christians believe. So if that's you, listen in. I'm going to tell you what is most central to our beliefs. And the last group are critics. You're here. You basically understand the Christian message, but you're not buying it. Just bear with me. Be open to the idea that you could be wrong, that we possess the truth, and that it matters for you. Okay? You guys still with me? All right. I want to begin by looking at some gospel misunderstandings, some gospel counterfeits, things that are often presented as the gospel in culture or even in churches that aren't themselves the gospel. And, and what I want us to see is that so many of these things possess something about them. They possess a quality or a characteristic that is itself somewhat true. But what's happened is this true idea has been a little bit altered and been removed from the outside of the center of the Christian message to the center of the Christian message. And when we do this, when we have a gospel that isn't actually the gospel, even if it conveys some truth, it's a counterfeit. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. So I want to walk through these because I hear them all the time. And it is helpful for us to know what the counterfeits are so that when we see the real thing, we really do know it. So the first is this, that the gospel is one of many ways to heaven. I hear this all the time. I see it on the little coexist bumper stickers. When I talk to people who are vaguely spiritual or religious, it's what I most often hear. I remember I was on a plane many years ago, and there was a lady sitting next to me, and I began to talk to her about the gospel. And just so you're aware, if you are a pastor or a minister, and you're on a plane or you're somewhere, and someone says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a preacher. They go, oh, oh. Um, <laughs> and, and then they, what, what they want to do is defend their, like, spiritual history. So they say, oh, yeah, no, I think, I think uh, Jesus is, uh, he's good. I re really respect Christianity. I think it's good. Um, I, I, as a kid, I always went to church. I don't go to church now, but I, I still think Jesus is, is good. I, like, I feel like my first job is just, like, relax. It's okay. And no one, uh, no one does this with other professions. It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm a math teacher. Oh, uh, I think math is good. Uh, <laughs> as a kid, I, I always did my homework. Um, I, think, I think I respect math. I just think it's bad when people push their particular type of math on other people. <laughs> Repeatedly, I hear, yeah, yeah, the gospel's good. It's just like one, one way of many to get salvation or God or eternal life. And I'm always saying to people, listen, that's not what Christianity claims about itself. In fact, if you read the vast majority of major world religions, none of them claim that. It's always strange to me when someone who's like vaguely, maybe like a secularist or vaguely an atheist or kind of spiritual, think they understand all the religions of the world than all the people who are members of those religions. I say, listen, Jesus, Jesus did not make claims like that. He made hard, exclusive claims about salvation. Over and over again. Here's a really famous one from John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if that wasn't clear enough, 
No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a sort of magnificent, immense, exclusive claim. Jesus isn't saying, I'm one of the ways. Whatever works for you, do that one. I'm one of the ways. Jesus says, no, no. There is no way to the Father. There is no way to salvation. There is no way to God except through Jesus Christ. You cannot believe that Jesus was a good man if you don't believe he's the only way to get to heaven. Because he said things like this about himself all the time. The gospel is not one way, or not many, one of many ways, it is the only way. The second counterfeit, the second misunderstanding I hear very often is prosperity now. Prosperity now. The idea that the point of the gospel or salvation is to have a better life than you had before you got saved in one way or another. Now, I, I see this in many, many different forms. Uh, probably most commonly it has to do with uh, wealth and health. Uh, before you're a Christian, you might not be very healthy or very wealthy, and then you believe in Jesus and become a Christian, and then you will be healed and you will have some money. And you can hear it other ways. You can hear it in terms of like career and identity. Before you were a Christian, you were kind of like vaguely wandering around life, and then you became a Christian, and your career suddenly just started crushing it in whatever field you were in, and you had this strong sense of identity, and you were really successful. How about relationally? Your family's not doing very well. You don't feel like you're a good father or a good wife or a good mother or a good whatever. And then you come to faith in Jesus and your family issues are resolved. These sorts of messages are perhaps the most appealing messages to most Americans today. They fill churches. There are enormous churches built on the idea that Jesus makes this life better and that is your hope. That's not true. That's a terrible lie. And it's a lie for a number of reasons. One, way, one reason it's a lie is it replaces like, the good news of the gospel with some temporary passing good thing. As Christians, I think sometimes we can be healed of sickness and we should faithfully pray to be healed. I think it is perfectly good to trust in the provision of God and pray that he would provide for you. I think there are a lot of resources in the New Testament that help us to relate better to our family members and other people. None of these things, none of these things are the hope that actually sustains us. None of them. It's so important that we understand this because when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, we've produced an idol in our hearts. The only thing meant to be worshipped, to truly hope in, to believe will save you is Jesus Christ himself. Look what Paul says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you look back at the history of Christianity, if you look back at the earliest Christians who went out and began to share the gospel, you read about lives that are not filled with prosperity, but are filled with persecution and suffering and difficulty. 
I am not saying that every Christian will have the same life that Paul had. In fact, that's almost certainly not the case. But when we read about Paul, we don't read about a luxurious, prosperous life. We read about a human being who has lost everything because he's gained the only thing that actually matters. Paul's hope is not in a healthy life, not in a wealthy life, not in a prosperous life, not in an easy life. It's in a new life. That's what we are promised as believers. Prosperity now is a counterfeit gospel. Thirdly, personal morality. Personal morality. The idea that the gospel is about being good and not bad. I think that, that this is probably the second most common thing I hear, and it's often paired with it. There are many ways to get to heaven. What, what it's about is just being a good person and not a bad person, loving other people, generally being righteous. And it's a really, really intuitive way of thinking about heaven and hell. And, and the idea is uh, you do more good than bad when you get to heaven. God is judged, sends you to heaven. And if you do more bad than good, when you get to God in heaven, he judges you and he sends you to hell. So the focus is just do good things and not bad things. It is a religion then built on human merit, human goodness, human ability. I, I understand it's intuitive. Right? Probably many people here today who that is your functioning understanding of Christianity. That is not the message of Christianity. It really is not the message of Christianity. I don't care how intuitive it is, how much it might make sense to you. It is not the message of Christianity because it dooms you to one of two things. It either dooms you to being terrified because you know you never can be good enough, or it dooms you to self-righteousness because you think that you are. Christianity is not a religion of human merit. It's a religion of divine merit. It's about God's goodness, about God's righteousness, and God's power to save, not our own. Personal morality is not at the heart of the gospel message. Now, now listen, remember, all of these things contain something in them that's true. Christians are called to live righteous lives, to be holy, to be obedient, to seek to do good. But that is the fruit of salvation, the result of salvation, not the root or the cause of salvation. Righteousness, personal morality, holy living is not the secret to gaining eternal life. It is the sign of one who already has it. Fourthly, there is the idea of inner peace. The idea of inner peace is really the heart of the gospel. That is, some people have a hard time living in their own brains. There's a lot of angst and, and frustration and, uh, and anxiety, and, and you just don't feel at ease with yourself. You want peace with yourself, and if you believe in Jesus, you will be given, and it's often quoted like, peace that surpasses all understanding. <laughs> and so the scripture is quoted there to explain what you get when you get Jesus. Again, Although Christianity is about peace, it is not about inner peace. When we read like the letters of Paul, and really when we see the testimony of the early church, we don't see people who are first and foremost at ease with themselves. Sometimes they are. I think sometimes believing in Jesus can lead to inner peace. I don't think that's the point. The peace that Christianity is about is peace with God, whose wrath is meant to be poured down on sinners. Inner peace is good, but it is not itself the gospel. And lastly, one that I hear a lot is the idea of horizontal justice. And let me explain what I mean by this. 
Uh, Sometimes it's called the social gospel or the gospel of social justice. The idea that Jesus arrives on the scene and we see his first sermon. It says that he says uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus preaches this kingdom message. And as Jesus preaches this kingdom message, we associate it with it. The idea of mercy and justice and flowing out from Jesus and his followers is a powerful force that transforms society and makes it more merciful and more just. So at the heart of the Christian message is the desire to feed the, feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to make sure the poor are cared for, to bring in the outcast. And then that becomes the heart of the gospel. Listen, it is extremely important that Christians are known for these things. I want to be clear. We should be known for feeding the hungry, for caring for the poor, for welcoming the outcast. We should be known for it. And Christians historically have been known for it. But when we take societal transformation, which I think does matter, and we move it to the center of the gospel message, again, we have a false gospel. Yes, mercy and justice matter. But the gospel is concerned primarily with mercy given to those who repent in faith and justice poured out on Jesus. So those are the five most common counterfeits, the five most common misunderstandings that I come across all the time. What I want to do now is go through three major gospel passages. I know probably many of you have been asked, where is the gospel in the Bible? And maybe you don't automatically know where to go to show people. So I'm going to show you three passages that I think you can turn to. When you're talking to someone and they say, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? And you feel stuck because you're like, it's the whole, the whole thing, right? Here's three passages that I think summarize it well. And we're going to draw some conclusions from each of these passages. But what I want you to see is that in all of these passages are four categories that are really helpful. And they're the four categories that this book actually uses to help us understand the concept of the gospel. And the categories are God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. So I'm going to give you the message of the gospel now. I want you to hear it in a relatively summarized form that uses these four categories that A, might convict some of your hearts, or B, enables you to go out and tell people about it. So first, God. There is one holy, good, righteous creator God. He made everything. And when he made it, it was good. And at the end of creation, he creates man and woman who are to reflect his glory as his image bears. They're made in the image of God. And all of creation obeyed God and did what it said except for humankind. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. They were marred then with sin. When they disobeyed God, sin and evil and sickness and death entered into the world. And they could no longer stand before a holy God to whom they were accountable. There's a creator God to whom we are accountable. And the greatest problem that humankind has, that man has, is sin. That's the bad news. Man doomed to die. Because we've all, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, inherited sin. We were born rebels against God. Enemies of God. Completely unable to please God. Here's the good news. God did not stand by and offer no way out. God, in his loving kindness, sent his son, Jesus. Jesus lives a sinless life. He commits no sin in any way. A perfect life, a life that we could not live. And then he goes to a cross where he dies a sacrificial, 
humiliating death. And at the moment of the cross, the judgment, the consequences, the wrath of God that was meant to be poured down on sinners was poured down on Jesus instead. Jesus is our representative sacrifice. God, man, Christ, now response. All those who call on the name of Jesus might be saved. At the end, when we stand before God in judgment, if we are found in the name of Jesus, if we've turned in repentance away from sin and in faith and trust towards Jesus, who is our representative sacrifice, we can point to his righteousness at the judgment day instead of our own and can be saved. That's the gospel message. God, man, Christ, response. And when we look at the gospel passages in the Bible, we can see different elements of that emphasized, nuanced in different ways. And what I want to do is turn to three and talk a little bit about each one. So the first one I want to turn to is 1 Corinthians 15. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul is writing to a church in this city called Corinth. Some of the people in that church had gone after another gospel and they'd asked him a number of questions and he's responding to their questions and in the midst of his response, he tells them what the gospel is. He says, here is the thing that I received that I'm going to pass on to you that we stand in, that we are being saved in, that is of first importance and I want us to see that it includes no instructions. It's not a how-to list. It's not like a BuzzFeed, life hack sort of thing. He says to them, not what they can do. He says what God has already done for them. The gospel is news, not advice. The gospel is news, not advice. It would be easy for us to look through the Bible and try and defy all the things that we should do as Christians, and there are many things we should do as Christians. But at the fundamental level, the gospel is not about what we can do, it is about what God has already done. And what's so interesting about this passage, and, and Christian scholars are always discussing this issue, when Paul begins to describe what the gospel is, he could have turned to a bunch of Jesus' teachings, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't turn to Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teachings do matter. They're rich, and there's lots we can learn from them. Paul instead turns to Jesus' mission. Here is what Jesus has done. So as we think about the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, we have to think about it in terms of news, not advice. Secondly, Romans 3. Romans 3. <clears throat> Paul is writing to this church in Rome, and he's never been to the Roman church before. He wants to stop 
at the Roman church on his way to the mission he wants to carry out in Spain. So he is writing them a letter to like ask them to essentially be a support spot for him. It's a support letter. Have you guys ever received like a missionary support letter? Who's received one before, right? Right, you read it and it says, you can either give me money or pray for me. And you're like, I will pray, right? (laughs) Paul's writing the support letter. He's ready to go to Spain. He's writing to the Roman church about what he's going to do there. And what we have in this letter, awesomely, is a really, really good description of the gospel message. He's saying to them, here's the gospel I'm going to preach. And he pulls no punches. Paul's never met these people. And he offers one of the most intense and clear descriptions of the gospel of all time. The Roman church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And if you don't know what those words mean, Jewish people are the descendants of Israel. They're the people of God. They're the primary human subject of the Old Testament. And then the Gentiles is everyone else that might now be included in salvation by calling on the name of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles represents everyone. So Paul begins describing the sin of the Gentiles. He says, you did this that's bad, and you do this that's bad, and you do this that's bad, and this is sin, and this is how you've disobeyed God. And I'm sure the Jews are like, yes! Everyone who's been in the room, when your parents are berating one of your siblings, knows what it's like to feel like, yes, get them, get them, get them. And then in chapter 2, after he has berated the Gentiles for a while, he points to the Jews and says, and you guys... And they're like, oh, all the same stuff, the same forms of disobedience, the same sorts of sin. And by the end of chapter 2, Paul has clearly said to everyone who could possibly listen to this letter, you are sinners. You are doomed. You're in trouble. The wrath of God is meant to be poured out on those who oppose God. You were born enemies of God. And then we have this beautiful passage that begins in Romans 3. Perhaps the best summary of the gospel in the entire New Testament. It begins with these words, but now. He says, all that sin, all that death, all of that wrath, but now, in Romans 3.21. You guys are going to get to see live how well I know where things are in the Bible. Paul says this in Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Two words I want us to zero in on here. The first is propitiation. It's a dense theological word. It might be the only word that you don't know if you've never read this passage before. It refers to a sacrifice. It refers to to offering something in place of something else so that the wrath of God might be appeased. So when the high priest would go into the temple on the holiest day of the year, and he would offer up a sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God for the people of Israel. Paul is saying, Jesus is our propitiation. He's the one on whom the wrath of God was poured out so that we might have the mercy of God. The other word that I want you to see is the word gift. Gift. Who likes receiving gifts? Everyone likes receiving gifts. You might not like all the gifts you receive. 
but you like receiving gifts. If it's the right gift, you like it. Gift means the same thing then as it does now. How many of you guys get Christmas gifts for kids? Anybody here? Okay. So you guys have the same experience as me, right? You open up your Excel spreadsheet of all the things your kids have done over the last year. You look at the bad things and the good things. You decide how much gift to give them based upon their yearly performance, right? No. I hope that's not what you do. (laughs) Gifts are given freely. You give it without expecting anything back. You give it not as a response to what they've done. You give it because you love them. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, the wages, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Those two things are contrasted. Salvation is not like a wage. It's not a salary. It's not a thing that's given in response to what you do. It's a gift that only God can give you. The gospel is received, not achieved. The gospel is received, not achieved. Another way of saying that might be salvation is achieved by God and received by us. Achieved by God, received by us. God achieves salvation, we receive it. I want you to reflect on that for a second. It's profoundly liberating. Salvation is something that God gives to you. Whether you think that you're righteous or you're just drowning, drowning in self-hatred. Either way, salvation is something God gives to you. Lastly, I want to look at Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And again, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is again writing to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, and there's all kinds of issues that he is going to address, but when he talks about the gospel, he talks about the gospel. And he uses drastic, stark language. He uses what what theologians call total state transfer language. Something being somewhere and being picked up and moved somewhere else. Paul doesn't say you were sick and you got healthier. He doesn't say you were poor and you got richer. He doesn't say you were a beginner and you were brought to the intermediate or advanced level. He doesn't say you were an amateur and made a professional. Paul says you were dead. 
dead. And you were made alive. You were dead and you were made alive. We take sick people to hospitals because we hope they will get better. We take corpses to morgues because we know that they won't. That's the magnitude of the miracle of salvation. Paul's saying, you were dead. You were dead. You were dead. You were as capable, as capable of anything as a corpse. There was nothing you could do. No power inside you. No ability to grasp and claw your way into salvation, no matter how hard or how long you worked. You were doomed. You were helpless. You were unable to do anything on your own. But our good God acted in our favor. He took dead people and he made them alive. Total state transfer. The gospel is about transformation, not reformation. It's about being changed totally, not being slowly made better. At least not at first. Salvation is not gradual. It is not slow. It is an instantaneous, dramatic, miracle of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together today. We thank you for the miracle of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that you have acted decisively in our favor with your son at the cross, the fact that you took dead people and you made them alive. You took sinners and you saved them. We know we did not and do not deserve this. If everyone can just keep their heads bowed for a moment. If you're sitting here and you realized that, uh, that you were not saved, that you had not yet truly responded to the message of the gospel, regardless of whether you've been here for 30 years or 30 minutes, I want to give you an opportunity to respond so we can pray together. So while everyone else's head is bowed, I want you to just show me that you want to respond by raising your hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see you. Anyone else? Pray this prayer with me. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that you've acted in my favor, that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. I repent of my sins, and I turn to Jesus in faith. Thank you for giving me a new heart. Thank you for giving me a new life. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.